pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you so much for the power and the abundance of your grace, and especially for this word which you have graciously preserved for us that we might learn from it. It surely is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May it guide us to you today. For the sake of your name and your kingdom, I pray. Amen. I'd like you to just take a moment now, and uh, at risk of you nodding off and falling asleep, I'm going to have you close your eyes. And what I want to do is to read something that actually comes from the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, by Philip Yancey, to lay the groundwork for what we're going to talk about today. It's a picture in your mind. Try to get yourself into the story. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan that she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and violence in downtown Detroit she concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen, and he offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year, and the man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes and her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks completely different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost 
in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled atop her coat. And something jolts a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind of May and Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once. With her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. And she's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering maybe about coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. So it takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaw in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and missed the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Thoughts bounce back and forth between these worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. Because she hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the road and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station... Its air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone. Fifteen minutes, folks. That's all we have here. Fifteen minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice. That is, if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. And not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees next. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 family members. 
brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmother and great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She looks through tears and begins to memorize speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know... And he interrupts her, hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies, because you'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. See, the concept of grace has a way of taking on a surreal, almost untouchable air when read in the context of Bible verses but it takes on a whole new significance when it becomes part of a 21st century bus terminal. All of a sudden, we're pulled into the story with such gravity and emotion that we can't escape it. Indeed, we don't even want to. In this story, we have become the daughter. Haven't we? We want that welcome to be our welcome, don't we? The one person we hardly ever desire to be in the story, however, is the father. Why? To assume that role is to embrace an aspect of grace that we tend to run away from. We avoid it at all costs. The aspect of being the giver rather than the receiver. To embrace that aspect is to realize that on the front side of the compassion and the forgiveness and the love and the joy shown by the Father lies a cauldron of intense emotions like hardship, grief, loneliness, disorientation, heartache, emotional fatigue, discouragement, and a never-ending stream of questions that have no answers. Questions like, why did this happen? How could this happen to me? Where is God in all of this? What did I do wrong? When will it end? What should I do? How should I respond to this? And why can't I just fix it? A French intellectual Jew who claimed to follow Christ by the name of Simone Weil interestingly concluded that two great forces rule the universe, gravity and grace. Emotionally, she concluded, we humans operate by laws as fixed as Newton's. All the natural movements of the soul, she says, are controlled by laws analogous to those of physical gravity. Grace is the only exception, she wrote. Most of us remain trapped in the gravitational field of self-love, and thus we, quote, fill up all the fissures through which grace might pass, unquote. That is why it is hard for us to place ourselves in the character of the Father in Jesus' parable in Luke 15. 
Because everything he does, all that he exhibits is contrary to the natural pull of our being. Had we been offered only the first 19 or 20 verses in this parable and then given an assignment to finish the story, we should do that sometime. Except it's so familiar, everybody knows how the story ends, right? I submit that if we were brutally honest, we would have all chosen vastly different responses to the returning son than those of the father. Don't you think? That's because grace goes completely against everything that is natural in us as people born with original sin. But as we begin to view this parable from the father's eyes, we're pressed into a wrestling match with what true grace really demands of us as if we are to imitate Christ in the staunch reality of this hypothetical story, grace becomes almost obscene. It's too loose. It's too accepting. It's too patient. It's too lenient. It's too raucous. It's too extravagant. It's too much. And that is precisely the way the older brother viewed the father's reaction. That is precisely the way that the scribes and Pharisees saw it. And the truth be known, that's the way most of us see it too. Unless we are on the receiving end of it. As Barbara Brown Taylor writes, extravagant love of God both fulfills and violates our sense of what is right. Grace is so attractive to us when we are on the recipient's we are the recipients, yet gravely repulsive when we are called to be the givers. The deal, however, is that we who have received must all the more give. Is that right? Someone once asked me how to define the word grace, and I laughed. At one point in my life, I would have shot back with the Bible college pat answer. It's undeserved favor. Or the cute answer, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Or I could have gone home and written a biblically detailed treatise on the doctrine of grace complete with footnotes and bibliography. The truth is, I don't think you can define grace any more than you can define love. Or define God. To adapt E.B. White's comment about humor, grace can be dissected as a frog, but the thing dies in the process. And the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. I agree wholeheartedly with one author who said, I don't want the thing to die. I would far rather convey grace than explain it. Conveying it, however, is just what we have a hard time doing. And it's precisely what the father in this parable in Luke 15 does. And Jesus' whole point is he casts himself in the role of the father is to call us to follow him and do the same thing. Amen? Amen. The imitation of Christ is the communication of grace. One of the most peculiar and spectacular discoveries that you will make in the Gospels is that Jesus never analyzed 
or even defined grace. As a matter of fact, if you study the Gospels very clearly and carefully, he almost never used the word grace. Instead, he communicated it through his stories and embodied it in his being. In order to define grace, I must determine to live like Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. In order to define grace, you and I must determine to live like Christ. Grace means becoming like the Father in this story. Let me ask you, are you ready for that? Before you shake your head in agreement, let's see exactly what that involves. Because the first thing that we realize is that grace is always undeserved. Look at verse 11, Luke chapter 15. And he said, a man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate on loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished, and so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but here I am dying with hunger. I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and he came to his father. Let's just stop there for a minute. Grace is almost always undeserved. That boy did not deserve anything. Almost all of us have grown up referring to this story as the parable of the prodigal son, right? The fact remains that Jesus didn't begin this parable with the words, a certain son had a father and an older brother. No, he lets us know who the focus is on, who the focus is placed on right away. It's on the father. Look at verse 1 again. Actually, verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The father is actually a prodigal himself. That's why I've entitled this series The Parable of Prodigal People, because every character in this story is a prodigal of sorts. The dictionary defines prodigal not only as someone characterized by wasteful expenditure as the younger brother, but in a second sense, the word refers to one who is recklessly extravagant lavish and yielding abundantly. And that describes the father all the way, doesn't it? Recklessly extravagant. If there are words to describe the grace poured out by God toward us 
and portrayed by this father toward both of his sons, the phrase recklessly extravagant is it. Hold your finger in Luke 15 and turn to Psalm 103, verse 8. Psalm 103 in verse 8. Listen to these words. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, praise God, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, and so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amazing picture, huh? Just as the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He knows and is mindful that we are but dust. God's love and grace is extravagant, but it's reckless in the sense that there's seemingly so much at stake here. There always is a lot at stake when grace is involved, wouldn't you say? Love is at stake. Truth is at stake. Responsibility is at stake. Too much grace will violate all of these things. Or so we think. What's really on the line here is our self-righteousness. That's what's on the line. Our self-confidence, our control, our pride. Love and truth, listen, Love and truth are never at stake when true grace is involved. They only gain opportunity. Love and truth are never at stake when true grace is involved. They only gain opportunity. You'll have to meditate on that one for a while. See, what's difficult about real grace is that, number one, it hurts immensely. It hurts immensely. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. See, here's the grief of grace right here. The grief of grace. As the supplier, it demands everything that we have. Because grace is always undeserved, our heart takes a direct hit, doesn't it? When we are the supplier. This dad got hit hard and hurt deep. To demand an inheritance while the father was living and in good health was an outrageous, insulting request. You know that. You've heard that. In Middle Eastern culture, it meant that the son was in a hurry for his father to die. The traditional response, by the way, was to strike the boy across the face and drive him out of the house. The expected response of the father is absolute refusal. But this father does not refuse. He grants the request. The freedom he grants is absolutely unthinkable in that society. The son can now own and sell his portion of the father's estate. 
all of a sudden, our eyes are open to the fact that this is no typical patriarch. In fact, according to biblical scholar Kenneth Bailey, this is the first of five responses which violate the traditional Middle Eastern tradition. The New English Bible translates that the son, quote, turned it into cash, his inheritance. Meaning that he sold part of the family farm, humiliating his father in front of the entire community. But the father knew this risk before he actually granted the request. That's the second departure from the expected norm. Bailey says, from the opening lines of the parable, it's clear that Jesus does not use an oriental patriarch as a model for God. He has broken all the bounds of Middle Eastern patriarchy in creating the image of the Father. No human father is an adequate model for God, he says. The fact that this father is elevated by Jesus beyond human limitations does not preclude the truth that the father's heart is deeply grieved whenever one of his children violates his love. God's heart takes a major hit when as prodigal people, we act selfishly. It grieves the Father's heart, the Scripture says. When we act shamefully and ungratefully, we humiliate Him before a watching world. You ever think about that when you're tempted to sin? Grace hurts immensely but also it hopes continually. It hopes continually. Verse 13, after the son goes on the journey in the distant country, he spent everything, everything. And then this famine occurs when we find out later on in verse 20 that while this boy was still a long way off on his way home, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. His father was hoping continually that his son would return. Some of you parents know exactly what this feels like. In the process of the violation, this father does something that is the epitome of God-likeness. Although the son broke covenant with his father, completely trashing their relationship, the father does not give up on the son who sought to disown himself. He does not give up. He does not give up. Instead, he keeps him in the fortress of his heart instead of the forefront of his vision. As the son departs, the father's heart goes with the son, even though physically he doesn't. It doesn't close in on itself. It doesn't collapse in depression. It goes out with his son. As one author suggests, he suffers the son's departure and therefore is always willing to readjust his identity as the identity of his son shifts. In a sense, that's why Jesus came, you know. Literally, to seek and to save that which was lost. God adjusted his identity, so to speak, and became a man to be with us, Emmanuel. To bring us home. He could have forgotten about us. After all, we abandoned him, right? He didn't abandon us. But he didn't do that. Hosea, chapter 11. In the Old Testament, little minor prophet. 
Hosea chapter 11, verse 8. Speaking for God, we hear God's lament. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like the birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. That's what's happening. That's what's going to happen to Israel one day, the prodigal nation, right? God's commitment to his people is irrevocable. He doesn't go back on his word. He is bound to them with bonds of love. That is an extremely significant element of grace. It does not give up. It makes the journey with the other person and longs for the healing. That is the kind of grace that you and I know little about. Yet it is what we're called to exhibit. It's so undeserved, but grace is always undeserved. Secondly, we find here that grace is always unexpected. Grace is always unexpected. Back in Luke 15, verse 20. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was a still long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, and we're going to celebrate. We're going to eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. But his older son was in the field, and you know the story, right? Came back to the house, he heard all the ruckus and the partying going on, and he inquired, what's going on? And one of the servants said to him, your brother's come home. Your father killed the fatted calf, and everybody's celebrating because he came back safe and sound. What did the brother do? All right. And he runs in, give his brother a big hug. Not the case, is it? He didn't go in. He got angry. It says he got very angry. And he began to complain. But the father comes out and pleads with the older brother to come in. Jesus unveils an element here that is supremely instructive. While he was still a long way off, Jesus says, Jesus said his father saw him. Clearly he had been watching, looking, hoping, praying for his son's return, but he didn't wait for the son to get all the way home before he went out to him. While he was still a long way off. And that's God's heart, isn't it? We are so far from God, he comes to us. This son had begun to take the necessary steps toward restoration. The beginning of repentance. 
Max Lucado's famous quote that I ended with last week is insightful, that if there are a thousand steps between us and God, he will take all but one. The son took the step of turning away from the world and turning back to his father, and the father took the rest. The father ran to meet him and made the rest of the way seem easy for him to return. Didn't make it hard. Did the father know that this son wasn't going to turn around and do the same thing? Of course not. Grace is always unexpected. Because if you expect it, it's not grace. It's payment. It's deserved. Whether it's God's grace toward us or ours toward another, it's unexpected or it's not true grace. And expected grace is not grace. Can I drive that any more harder into my head or yours? Because we live in a country that is filled to the eyebrows with entitlement. Grace is always unexpected. Because if you expect it, you likely think you deserve it. This son didn't know what to expect. At best, he expected to be hired on as a slave. What happened totally floored him. At the father's responses, I can quickly draw out a few things in ascending order that grace demands of us. Number one, it labors long. It labors long. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. See, grace looks for healing. It looks for healing. That's what's so ex unexpected about it. it doesn't, it's not bitter. And it doesn't hold grudges. And it's not vengeful. It looks for healing. It labors long and hard in prayer and spiritual battle. Don't think for a minute that this father didn't labor spiritually for his son. The Old Testament image of God reveals the resolve of God for his children. In Isaiah 62 and verse 1, it says, Because I love Zion, because my heart yearns for Jerusalem, I cannot remain silent. I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. That's God's heart for his people. Grace labors long. It goes deep. Grace goes deep. It says here, and he felt compassion for him. This father hurt every bit as much as his son did. It's just not pity for him. This was like entering in, gut-level identification. He felt his hunger. He knew his need. He ached in loneliness because he was on the journey with his son. in his heart. He couldn't separate himself from it. I, I won't be embarrassing my daughter to say this, but when my daughter, who was a prodigal in her own right, and you're going to hear about that next week, my wife and I felt this. The loneliness. The hunger. The need. We're going to do a tag team message next week together. Don't miss that. <laughs> I've waited 12 years to do this. <laughs> That's for God. Have you felt the hurt of your own child gone AWOL from the faith? Some of you might be there right now. There's hope. How would you react upon their return? How much more the Father on our return to Him? 
Grace labors long. It goes deep and it risks self. It says he ran. Again, totally unexpected reaction for an oriental patriarch, gathering up the loose ends of his robe, girding up his loins. He just, he doesn't walk, he runs. This time it's not the son who brings the humiliation upon the father, he brings it upon himself for the sake of the wayward son. How willing are you to do that? Got to keep up face, you know. How willing are you to take the risk and love with that kind of reckless abandon? Yet that's exactly what grace is, involves here. I know in our journey, my wife and I, with, with, with Sarah, there were people all the time trying, they would, they would go in and out. People would try to tell us what to do, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, questioning our decisions and our motives and how, how we were doing, whether we were enabling or whether we were, you know, on and on it goes. And you will experience that same thing. It risks self. You see, as much as you need the help of your faith community, it is still a lonely and individual journey with God as your only compass. It's what Christ did when he submitted himself to a humble birth and a humiliating death. Grace not only risks self, but also it forgives all. And it says, and he embraced him. No holds barred, forgiveness and acceptance. Father's embrace envelops and overwhelms the son. The father falls on the neck of his son, not as a response to his son's confession, but as the result of his own compassion. He humbles himself, assumes the role of a servant, and runs to reconcile his estranged son. It is a verbal portrait of the gospel in all of its glory. The embrace of the father is the embrace that all of us long for, that all of us dream for, that all of us need. It's the embrace that only can be found in an encounter with the risen Christ. It's the embrace of forgiveness that once we've received it, we in turn can bestow it upon other people. In the famous painting by Rembrandt, Return of the Prodigal Son, which you see behind me, a myriad of spiritual truths are depicted a lifetime of observation could not exhaust the possibilities of interpretation. Inspired by the painting, Henry Nouwen, through years of spiritual meditation and personal reflection, saw his own spiritual journey through each of the characters in the painting. In his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, he wrote this. He said, the true center of Rembrandt's painting is the hands of the father. On them, all the light is concentrated. On them, the eyes of the bystanders are focused. In them, mercy becomes flesh. Upon them, forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing come together. And through them, not only the tired son, but also the worn-out father find their rests. But there's something else quite interesting about the hands. The two are quite different, if you notice. Now in writes, the father's left hand... Touching the shoulder is strong and muscular. The hand seems not only to touch, but with its strength also to hold. How different is the father's right hand? This hand does not hold a grasp. It is refined, soft, very tender. It lies gently on the son's shoulder. It wants to caress, to stroke, and to offer consolation and comfort. 
It's a mother's hand. It's an incredible insight, isn't it? I've always asked the question of this parable, where was the mother, by the way? It would have been more expected that the mother run down the road and shower the boy with kisses while the father waited for his son to explain himself, right? Yet God is neither male nor female. He is spirit. He is one. And he is personal. And throughout the Old Testament, he is referred to as having both fatherly and motherly characteristics. I'll give you some verses because I don't have time to look them up right now. If you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 32, 18. Isaiah 66, 12 through 13. And Isaiah 49, 15 and 16 all depict the motherly qualities of God. If the father in this story symbolizes the character of God, then he embodies and exhibits both mother and father qualities. The father's reaction is totally unexpected. And that's what makes grace so difficult to reckon with. It labors long. It goes deep. It risks self. It forgives all. And finally, it pours out. In Luke 15, verses 21 to 24, it just talks about the fact that he kissed him. He gave him a robe, put sandals on his feet, killed the fatted calf. It pours out. Not only does the father's immense love for the son offer total and undeserved forgiveness, but it desires to pour out new life in abundance. Almost impatiently, the father stops the son's confession midstream, and he orders all of these things done. The robe of honor gives him status. The ring of authority gives him a signet. Sandals of sonship. Slaves, by the way, went barefoot in those days. He's telling his son, you're never going to be a slave in my house. You can't be. Gives him, gives him shoes. And the table of celebration, the fattened calf as the guest of honor, believe it or not. The son was speechless, overwhelmed with unexpected grace. But the elder son was overwhelmed as well. Because this unexpected grace floored him. It was not only unexpected by the returning brother, but also by the one who had never left. And you can read that in the final verses of this parable. But not only was this grace unexpected by the older brother, it was unwelcome. But that's been the case in all of history of the church since the first century, hasn't it? The grace that Jesus describes in this parable is risky business. Even some early church fathers felt that to allow such extravagant forgiveness within the church was to invite its abuse. Tertullian, a gifted theologian, writing only 150 years after the Apostle Paul, argues that the parable of the prodigal son must never be applied to Christians. Could a Christian sin in such a rebellious, high-handed manner and still be forgiven? Tertullian said, no, to extend forgiveness so broadly would release a torrent of sin within the church. Not only adulterers and fornicators, but idolaters, blasphemers, and renegades, every class of apostates, unquote, would use the parable as an excuse for sin. Who will worry about losing what can be so easily regained, Tertullian asked. Security in sin develops an appetite for it. This is one of the early church fathers. Ambrose, 
A leading bishop in Italy argues that to deny people, Christians or non-Christians, the possibility of forgiveness, even for the gravest of sins, was to rob them of all hope. That was the other side. The prodigal son had found his way home by the path of repentance. Where would his repentance lead him if he could never go home again? Think about that statement. Where would repentance lead these people, prodigals, all of us, if there was no place to go home to? How far the elder brother was from the father's heart. How far are you and me? How quick are we to withhold grace from even a family member? But the father again does the unexpected for the fourth time, transcends the tradition of the Middle Eastern patriarchs, and he goes out to the other lost son. Again, Kenneth Bailey points out that for a son to be present on the premises when a party was going on, a banquet such as Jesus describes here, is an un and not go in, is an unspeakable public insult to the father. So here we have the elder son insulting the father just as the younger one did earlier on. The older son's rejection of the father's reconciliation and returning son leads him to break his relationship with the father as well. So for the second time in one day, the father offers unexpected grace. And he goes out to the older son. Now culturally, that father would normally ignore the insult and deal with the son later. But in public humility, he goes out to the son to try to rescue another lost son. Unexpected grace holds true for both. For both, the elder and the younger. While the younger son accepted the father's costly grace, the older son is incensed. He attacks both the father and the younger brother. In this son's mind, only hard work and obedience warranted the father's favor. Grace is undeserved. You can't work hard enough. And you can't obey long enough. Because then it's not grace. It's always undeserved. It's always unexpected. And in the end, what this son needed to realize was that grace is always unearned. Always unearned. The older brother always had the inheritance. It was guaranteed to him. Not because of what he did, though. Because of who he was. He was the firstborn. He was a son, a member of the family. And that's something you cannot earn, nor is it something that we come to deserve. Someone has noted that obedience and hard work were appropriate within the family structure, even praiseworthy. But the older brother's position as a son was not predicated on his hard work and obedience. The older son had not learned that family language is largely the language of love, forgiveness, and reconciliation, not that of moral obligation. So for the fifth time now, the father ignores tradition and appeals to the older son with grace. Instead of ordering punishment for the public insults and willfully breaking that relationship, he entreats this older brother, this older son, to understand. Yes, the younger brother had made terrible mistakes, wounding his father's heart, but his status as a son never changed. Right? His status as a son never changed. 
It couldn't. He had thought that he could return to the family circle as an outsider, a family slave. But that was impossible, and the father pointed that out. Once a son, always a son. Even when lost in a foreign land. All that the father asked and longed for was that the son would come to his senses, change his mind about his behavior, and come home. And the fact that he did was cause for a joyous celebration. What an incredible picture of the limitless and relentless love of God in Christ, wasn't it? This parable. As the father again seeks to reconcile both the sons to himself, we realize that this father has become a symbol for Jesus Christ himself. I and the Father are one, Jesus said. He who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said. And his grace is utterly amazing. And it is by communicating grace, clothed in truth, and secured by love, that you and I can imitate the Christ who is our Savior and our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.